So turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm number 9, please. We examined last week verses 1 to 11. And we'll be examining with the Lord's gracious help verses 12 to 20. But we'll read it as in its entirety, the whole of Psalm 9. Psalm 9, then reading from verse 1. Psalm 9 to the chief musician upon Muthla ben, a psalm of David. I will praise thee, O Lord, with my whole heart. I will show forth all thy marvelous works. I will be glad and rejoice in thee. I will sing praise to thy name, O thou Most High. When mine enemies are turned back, they shall fall and perish at thy presence. For thou hast maintained my right and my cause. Thou sattest in the throne judging right. Thou hast rebuked the heathen. Thou hast destroyed the wicked. Thou hast put out their name forever and ever. O thou enemy, destructions are come to a perpetual end. And thou hast destroyed cities. Their memorial is perished with them. But the Lord shall endure forever. He hath prepared his throne for judgment, and he shall judge the world in righteousness. He shall minister judgment to the people in uprightness. The Lord also will be a refuge for the oppressed, a refuge in times of trouble. And they that know thy name will put their trust in thee, for thou, Lord, hast not forsaken them that seek thee. Sing praises to the Lord, which dwelleth in Zion, Declare among the people his doings. When he maketh inquisition for blood, he remembereth them. He forgetteth not the cry of the humble. Have mercy upon me, O Lord. Consider my trouble, which I suffer of them that hate me. Thou that liftest me up from the gates of death. That I may show forth all thy praise in the gates of the daughter of Zion. I will rejoice in thy salvation. The heathen are sunk down in the pit that they made. In the net which they hid is their own foot taken. The Lord is known by the judgment which he executeth. The wicked is snared in the work of his own hands. Higayon Salah. The wicked shall be turned into hell and all the nations that forget God. For the needy shall not always be forgotten. The expectation of the poor shall not perish forever. Arise, O Lord. Let not man prevail. Let the heathen be judged in thy sight. Put them in fear, O Lord, that the nations may know themselves to be but men. Salah. Amen. Amen. So the title of this uh, message being part two uh, of our study of Psalm 9, uh, so it takes the title from last week, and we consider this to be a victory song, a victory song of the Lord, victory song of the church, a victory song of the gospel, and so a title to the past, present, and perpetual victories of Christ, this being the second part. But in the first part, very briefly, just to catch up, in the first six verses we see that the song of victory uh, commences. 
Yeah, begin then with the first uh, six verses. We see that this praise is foretold, as we looked at last week. Praise that was given uh, because God giving the victory over the enemies. And thirdly, there's something of perpetual praise as a look towards uh, the future. Uh, six, uh, verse 6, of our enemy destructions are come to a perpetual end, etc. So the song of victory uh, commences with those uh, glorious truths. Secondly, the eternal victory declared, being declared even more so, uh, verses 7 to 11, which was the second point we looked at last week. And at verses 7 to 11, firstly, uh, that the, the Lord is eternal, the eternal Lord is revealed to us there, the Lord, but the Lord shall endure forever, and his enemies will not, etc. Secondly, that the Lord is the righteous judge. He will deal with them all righteously. Uh, nobody will ever pay for more uh, of their sin, and nobody will ever pay less than their own sin, but each will uh, pay for their own sin. And thirdly, our eternal refuge. Now coming back to the, to the comforts, to the church of God. And then fourthly, looking at verse 11, our, our present witness, sing praises to the Lord, which dwelleth, dwelleth in Zion, declare among the people his doings. So something there of, a, of the witness of the church to the goodness of God, and even in the Great Commission that we are to declare to the world uh, the greatness of God and his works, his doings. Which brings us then to our third point, um, and just make a very brief comment before we get into the second part, is that a certain themes are repeated or even explored more so as we, as we delve into the second part. So we'll see aspects of the judgment of God upon the heathen. But we see thirdly then his caring victory, his caring victory. Um, see in verse uh, 12, 13, and 14, uh, especially from verse 12, then the cry of his downtrodden people, when he maketh inquisition for blood, he remembereth them, he forgetteth not the cry of the humble. So what do we see here? We see again the Lord's victory over everything in the world that is not according to his will, everything that's the fruit of the fall, everything that's caused by sin and the work of Satan, his victory over all wickedness, persecution of his church, especially in the context of these verses, and death itself. He maketh inquisition for blood. Spilt blood will not be ignored. It will not be passed over. It will not be uh, put to one side. And, and we can go to the very earliest books of the Bible to see that's exactly what the Lord was doing when Cain spilt the blood of Abel. He, he, he makes inquisition after blood. The, the, the very ground was calling out for revenge against Cain for having spilt the blood of somebody made in the image of God himself. Spilt blood will not be ignored. And consider the context of the people of God. He calls them here the humble. He remembereth them. He remembereth his own people. He forgetteth not the cry of the humble. And so all the blood that has been spilt over the centuries of all of God's people, of all of his, his prophets and his servants that are revealed, revealed in the Scriptures, uh, the great persecutions in the Roman Empire in the early centuries um, uh, after, of the New Testament era, uh, throughout uh, the, the tyranny of the Roman Catholic Church, and of course the tyranny of the Muslims and, and other, other 
times of great persecution, even unto blood, the Lord forgetteth not one of a drop of any of the blood of his people. Every wound even, every cry, every, every blow, every, every hate-ridden word, every tear is remembered by the Lord. He remembereth them. It reminds us of what Psalm 56 and verse 8 says, Thou tellest, thou countest my wanderings, put thou my tears into thy bottle, are they not in thy book? In the book of God's remembrance, in, in the, the precious tears of his own people, he remembers. To the, to the, to the, to the one tear that's, that, that, that falls down the, the cheek of his child in, in private, in secret, with the lights not turned on, the Lord knows them, the Lord collects them, the Lord is concerned about them. The Lord forgets not the cry of the humble. He hears every cry. Uh, verses 13 and 14, we hear something to the cry of his suffering servant then, taking the context here in verses 13 and 14, because the cry goes forth, Have mercy upon me, Lord. Uh, because of the difficulties that he is in, Consider my trouble which I suffer of them that hate me, thou that liftest me up from the gates of death. The hate that is in the world against the people of God goes all the way back, of course, to Genesis 3 and verse 15 with the enmity that God put between the children of the devil and the children of the church of the woman. And that enmity that there is, and it's important that that enmity is there, because the Lord uses that enmity uh, to keep the church pure and to purge the church that it would become pure in its times of backsliding. That each personal believer, that's just looking at the church at large, but each personal believer that goes through affliction and goes through struggle and that the Lord uses those things for our good, for our sanctification, for our perfection, for the crucifixion, crucifixion of our flesh, which must be done. It must be done, but the Lord blesses it to us, as we examined in Romans 8 and verse 28 just recently. But if you think of who this suffering servant is, of course, immediately we think of David because he is the author of the psalm, and we know that David did suffer much affliction uh, at times in his life. No doubt there were times of affliction in his younger days that we know very little about, he was looked down upon as the, the youngest and, and the, uh, the, the, the least honored of his own family. If you consider how his elder brothers used to, uh, spoke of him and spoke about him, he was not even brought forth for the prophet to examine if it, this is the anointed of God, etc. Uh, but what we do know is especially how he was treated by the king to whom he was loyal. He was loyal to Saul. He fought Saul's battles. He brought honor and glory to Saul, and yet Saul hated him. And that is also a reflection of the enmity between those in the kingdom of darkness and those in the kingdom of light. He was hated. He was hated by others also. And so he calls upon uh, the Lord for mercy. And Psalms 3 four, five, six, seven, not eight, but this one, nine again, all contain the cries of David for mercy and for help because he had many enemies. 
And we saw that some of those enemies were in the people of God themselves, within the church of the Old Testament. Uh, others were enemies, no doubt, outside from the, the heathen countries round about. But here he is, he's calling upon the Lord for mercy. But also, it's not just David, it, it, it's, it's our cry as well that we call upon the Lord for mercy and for help, that he would help us consider my trouble, which I suffer of them that hate me, thou that liftest me up from the gates of death. But bringing all those thoughts together, we can say with, with certainty that this also speaks of Christ the sufferings of Christ, the sufferings of Christ up to and including his crucifixion. Looking for the mercy of God to help him in his, in his humanity, needing help, needing strength. Uh, therefore, he prayed often to the Lord, uh, spending certain nights to the Lord, but also receiving strength from the Lord. Remember the angel in the garden strengthening the Lord in his humanity the weakness that he had being fully human without denying anything of him being fully divine, of course. But Christ on the cross. We consider then his words, consider my trouble which I suffer of them that hate me. Now that the world hated Christ then and it hates Christ now. And yet we see something even there of his resurrection. Thou that liftest me up from the gates of death. Pointing to the resurrection of Christ. Seeing Christ yet in all the scriptures, but especially in the Psalms. But we see, then have mercy upon me, O Lord, and moving on to verse 14, Lord, if, if thou savest me, if thou helpest me, if thou uh, removest the, the, the threat of the enemy and their hatred from my so of my soul from my heart, he says, that I may show forth all thy praise in the gates of the daughter of Zion, I will rejoice. This is, this is the promise that's made, Lord, if thou wilt help me, then, then I have more reason to praise, that I have more reason uh, to give thee glory. The, the, the Lord's salvation itself is, is praiseworthy. Not only is it praiseworthy, but it's a source of great joy. Joy. Joy and the believer. There's hardly a book in the Bible uh, that we will not see joy and the believer, especially in the, in, in the Psalms, uh, very much so in the New Testament also, is that the believer is to be a joyful believer. And yet, well, that's not always the case. Often we are morose. Often we are uh, uh, depressed to some degree. Often there's not even a, a, a smile on the face. And if it is, then we can't say it's because we're thinking of the joy of our salvation. And yet we are we are encouraged again and again in the Scriptures to rejoice, um, to have that, that, that joy in the Lord because the Lord has saved us. And again, we're reminded of this truth again. I will rejoice in thy salvation. Now, the reason why we don't rejoice is we don't consider our salvation. We don't consider the fact that the Lord has saved us. And if we do, we take it for granted and forget the fact that I should have gone to hell. I should not have been, be, been given uh, one moment of breath, never mind the lifetime of, of gifts and blessings that the Lord has given me. And, and, in, my, and in, in, in the case of the believer, he's opened our eyes and opened our hearts. He's revealed Christ to us and in us and, and all these glorious truths. And now that I am saved, I'm still a sinner. I'm still far from perfect. 
I do not walk as I should walk. And yet the Lord loves me. The Lord has given me his son. The Lord has filled me with his spirit. And he has these wonderful promises of an eternity with him, none of which have been earned. All of grace, all of love, all of kindness. That God chose me because I would not choose him. And, and, and the, we must meditate upon these things. That we, would, that we would awaken in our heart, that we, as, 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 as David does so often, awake my soul and praise the Lord. Come on and consider these truths that I must have rejoicing in the salvation of my God because his salvation is praiseworthy and a cause of great joy. The last book of the Bible, Revelation 21, gives us uh, another uh, cause of that joy because everything that would work against that joy, everything that does work against that joy in our lives is to be removed. Revelation 21 and verse 4, and God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. And there shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. If God would just write that upon our hearts that we would understand what, what, what true Christian joy would bubble over from out our hearts and over the lips of our mouths, that we wouldn't walk around as if being a Christian is the most uh, morose and moronic thing, but we would be genuinely joyful, not that we necessarily have to have a cheesy grin on our face all the time by any means, but there would be a true joy, and that joy would come forth the joy that we have in coming together in the house of God, the joy that we have together in worshipping the Lord, the joy that we have having that fellowship one with another because God saved me for no reason found in me, but he saved you for no reason found in you, all of us, having been saved by the sweet and loving grace of God. And so these things that we see here, that we see uh, uh, you suffering, that the, the, the church suffering, that David suffered, that Christ suffered, will soon belong to the past. Will soon belong to the past, which points us and brings us then to, the, to the, our fourth point. So we've seen his caring victory. We fourthly see his righteous victory in verses 15 to 17. Here we see the truth. The heathen are sunk down in the pit that they made. In the net which they hid is their own foot taken. The Lord is known by the judgment which he executeth. The wicked is snared in the work of his own hands. Higayon Salah. So what do we see then in the, those two verses concerning the righteous victory of Christ over all things? Which he has already, but we do not yet see them all worked out because all things are not yet uh, consummated. To that end but it's as good as one but we see firstly the fruit of the fallen the fruit of the fallen and, and he, he has uh, three images that we have here in front of us we see a pit we see a net and we see a snare and and, and, and neither a pit or a net or a snare are for any good for anyone except to capture somebody else of course they used to catch your animals but that's not the point here they, they, they have dug a pit, they have spanned a, a net, no doubt over that pit. They've put a snare, maybe even a snare in that pit to catch people out, to catch people unawares, to take their money, to take their life, whatever else they would steal from someone. 
And we see that it's, it's repeated. They've set up a pit, they've dug a pit, sorry, they've spanned a net, they've set a snare. And what happens in each of these cases is they're caught by their own wickedness. That which they had set up to destroy someone else, the Lord then uses to destroy them. The righteousness of God at work here, turning their works against them. And he's saying that that will ultimately be the case. And quite often that is the case in life. So, so much so that, that even the heathen religions with their, with their darkened minds see something of this pattern. And for example, they would call it karma. They see that somebody uh, does something in a certain way against other people, and then as it were, fate works against them. No, it's, it's the hands of a sovereign judge on his throne in heaven. It's got nothing to some, some per, you know, um, impersonal uh, karma. This is the work of God. But even the heathen can see that and recognize it. And this is what, this is what uh, David is, is writing about here. That all these things that they have done, they were all turn against them. And the Lord will use it to destroy them. To catch them in a pit. To, to entangle them in a net. Uh, to ensnare them in the snare. For the Lord is known. The Lord is known by the judgment which he executeth. I mean, even, even considering the believer, the Lord can do this to the believer. The believer who is persistent in certain sin, the Lord can turn that upon the believer also. It's not just uh, the heathen, although that is what's mentioned here. And I just give that one example. Jacob, Jacob the deceiver, deceived his father. In some ways deceived his elder brother, though his elder brother had already sold the birthright. But he had deceived his father. And what do we see? Seven years after that, that Jacob himself is deceived by Uncle Laban. The deceiver is deceived. The Lord, as it were, turns the tables on a, on a believing man, a godly man, Jacob. Not sinless and sometimes foolish. But even in the case of the godly, the tables have been turned. But we see here also at the end of that verse 16, uh, two words, two Hebrew words, Higayon and Selah. We've looked at Selah already, literally meaning to raise up. And we thought, well, it could be the raising up of the instruments in volume. And that, and that gives a slight pause. That's the musical understanding. And maybe then there's a pause in the music and we can understand that as we read it, that we are to pause and think about what we've just read, which I think is a good a good application of what that word would mean for us in reading the Psalms. But we have this new, this, now this word Hegion, which is not a very a common word in the Scriptures, and can be, it can be translated as meditation. Meditation. And so that seems like a, a, a double exclamation mark in Hebrew, as it were. First, we've got Selah and we've got Hegion together, that we're to meditate on this, we're to pause, to think, on the truth of that, word, of that verse, that the Lord is known by the judgment which he executeth. Present tense. He's doing it now, still. He's constantly executing judgment. The wicked is snared in the work of his own hands. Meditate and think on that. And these words are written for the people of God. This is not a letter that's sent to the heathen, though we would like the heathen to read the Scriptures. It's for us. The wicked is snared in the work of his own hands that the Lord 
Lord can deal with his own people, even in this case, the way he will treat the heathen if our behavior is like the heathen. If our behavior is like those that know not Christ, that the Lord is saying that he will turn the tables even on us. Why? Not for our eternal destruction, but as a sharp rebuke uh, from our own Father's hand. So that's the fruit of the fallen. When we think of the heathen, they fall into the pit, etc. And secondly, their dreaded destination, because there is an eternal destination. It's not just the judgment of God in the here and now, but that's extended into the eternal future. Verse 17, the wicked shall be turned into hell and all the nations that forget God. This is the other side of the gospel coin then. That we, we have the, uh, the, the, the promises and the hope uh, that's extended to those that receive the Lord, but on the other hand, those that ignore the gospel or hate the gospel and will not be humbled by it will be dealt with in that way. For that's for those that have heard the gospel, of course. So the gospel promises and the gospel warnings. But we've got to understand that even here, although it says in all the nations that forget God, there are, of course, many nations that have never heard of the true uh, uh, God, of the true and living Jehovah God. They haven't heard of him at all. Does that mean they will not be turned into hell? It does not. There is no special, uh, there is no special dispensation for any any heathen nation or race that has not heard the gospel, and you'll often hear this used by atheists, um, saying it's not fair, they've never heard the gospel, so therefore they've not had a chance to be saved. You'll even, even maybe hear some, uh, some Arminians making this point and others. But what we see when we read this is the wicked shall be turned into hell. So whether you've heard the gospel or not, you're still burdened and, 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 lay, and weighed down by your own sin, your own guilt. Your own guilt speaks against you because you've sinned against God. You've sinned against the conscience that God has put in you. And even in most ancient societies, not societies like our own, which are so corrupt that they approximate Sodom and Gomorrah, but ancient societies and, and cultures tended to have many aspects that were very similar to the, to the Ten Commandments. They understood at least some basics about not killing. Of course, they weren't, weren't as clear uh, as the Bible is about what, 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 what the limitations are of, of, of killing and murder and manslaughter and the like. But they, they still had something of a morality because God has uh, not only allowed these societies to have some light because of the light of nature, but also because of the conscience that's been built in to every man. And upon the basis not of not hearing the gospel, not, not in the case of hearing the gospel and rejecting it, but even not hearing the gospel. They will die in their own sin and be reckoned uh, for it, will be judged for it, I should say. And that is the truth. But notice here that he speaks of nations. Nations and all the nations that forget God. We, we, we think very often on individualistic uh, ideas because that's, that's the culture we're in, a very individualistic culture. But the Lord speaks about nations here. We know in the New Testament that the, that the Lord Jesus says in a number of times, he speaks of whole cities, the city of Capernaum, 
that will be judged on the last day. Sodom and Gomorrah will rise up against um, Capernaum and, and, and other places because they have, they have rejected, they have received so much. In gospel light, the Lord himself uh, stood upon the ground that these cities are built upon, and yet they, they rejected the gospel. But we see that, can a city reject the gospel? Well, yes. Cities are reckoned with. Sodom is reckoned with. Gomorrah, the other uh, four of the five cities of the plain that were destroyed, were reckoned with because of the sinfulness that was allowed to persist in a town or in a city or in a nation, bringing God's judgment, not only temporal judgment, but an everlasting judgment upon those people. Will the Lord's people in those places escape? Yes, we consider Lot escaping by the skin of his teeth. But his wife didn't escape. She didn't leave. She left physically, but her heart was still there. But we're not going to go into Lot and, and, and his wife at the moment. But we do see this, the dreaded, the dreaded or the dreadful as well, destination that is given uh, to all. We could go in further into that and the judgment upon cities and nations, but it's there in the Scriptures. And to understand it, God's judgment upon them. There's a judgment upon Oh, there's a, as we mentioned on the Lord's Day, there are many judgments upon Canada. And it seems that many more will come yet, and we look to the Lord uh, to have mercy and to bring relief from the unrighteous in power. But we see his righteous victory over, over the wicked, over their sins, and over sinful nations. Uh, and their dreaded destination is that the wicked shall be turned into hell. Shall we just say and make that clear? The unrepentant wicked shall be turned into hell. So we've seen his caring victory, his righteous victory, and we finish with his final victory. Hinted at, of course, in verse 17. His final victory, verses 18 to the end to 20. And here is that wonderful truth. And again, it harkens back to, to something of uh, verse 12. And even verse uh, 13. But verse 18 says, For the needy shall not always be forgotten. The expectation of the poor shall not perish forever. So it brings us, to, brings us back to the church, to the individual believer's experience, the need of present long-suffering. The need of present long-suffering. For the needy shall not always be forgotten. In, in other words, the, 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 the problems and, and, and the terrors that the needy, again, the needy is, is pointing to the poor in spirit. It's pointing to the people of God who, who suffer persecution and, dis, and despisement, who suffer many things in this life, but it is but for a season. And it comes and goes in seasons. For the whole church or for whole lands or areas of the world, there are, there are, are times of, of great persecution. We see that, that, that clear and violent persecution that has been taking place in China, uh, that's been ramping up in India over the past few years. But there's a different type of persecution that we're under, not, 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 not that we're suffering that persecution in the same way at all, but there is a persecution, there's a judgment and the persecution uh, that we have is, is a subtle, 
there's a spiritual darkness that's being cast upon uh, the, the, uh, over Canada. And we pray for help and we pray for relief and we cry to the Lord as, we're, as, we, as we must do, as we desire to do, as is our example uh, given to us here. So it's a biblical warrant that we have to call upon the Lord and yet we don't always receive that answer immediately. We often do not receive that answer immediately because the Lord is working all things out. And not only do certain things take time to fall into place, but I think primarily, that's not even the first point, but primarily the Lord would have us wait. It's so tempting just to, as it were, click our fingers and say, Lord, remove this from me now, and then he removes it from us now. It's not, it's not good for us to get what we want. It, it, it's good for us to wait. Uh, there's an expression that's used, delayed gratification. If you can learn to delay your gratification, that will make you a faithful husband. Or it'll make you better at, uh, at saving money so I'm not going to buy it now, I'm going to save up for it, I'm going to pay all my other bills and just little bit by little bit I'll, I'll save up my money to buy that thing that I, that I really want to buy. And of course if it comes to that time and then a, a large bill has to be paid, then as a man, or as a woman, as a grown up, as a mature adult, uh, we will pay for that bill and then start saving again. So delayed gratification is good for the character, it's good for the soul, but it is, it is good in this sense, delayed answering of prayer makes us pray even more. It forces us on our knees. And so the need of present long-suffering, knowing that there, it is, there is an end in sight. It is not that it's just going to continue forever and ever, but the Lord will bring an end to that difficulty. And we hope, of course, at the end of that difficulty, we will be in our present lifetime, that it may be just next year, or, or the year after, or preferably just tomorrow, but even so, with that long-suffering and that need to suffer, to purge ourselves, that God would grow us to make us mature Christians instead of immature Christians, wanting, wanting fulfillment and, uh, uh, now. But the Lord says, no, the, the needy shall not always be forgotten. The expectation, the hope of the poor shall not perish forever. But it can also be that it will be to the last breath that the Lord has that, that cross laid upon us. But at death, there's release, eternal release. And we know, if you know anything about the history of the suffering church, you know that's often been the case. Whether it be in ancient Rome, whether it be in Germany or in Scotland or whatever it might be, where great persecution has taken place, and so we're, we're reminded here of the need of present long-suffering, of suffering humbly under the hand of God uh, for, for our good, for the sake of our good and growth in Christ. And secondly and finally, the church's prayer for Christ's ultimate victory, verses 19 and 20. Arise, O Lord, let not man prevail, that is, have the victory. Let the heathen be judged in thy sight, Put them in fear, O Lord, that the nations may know themselves to be but men. Selah. So three, three prayers. We could add to this the, the, final, the final prayer where it talks about Christ coming back again because they are linked together when we consider 
Revelation and the Spirit and the Bride calling for the return of, of Christ. And it's in the very last, very last uh, chapter of Revelation, Revelation chapter uh, 22. And the Spirit and the Bride say, Come, and let him that heareth say, Come, and let him that is athirst come, and whosoever will, let him take the water of life freely. And also at the bottom, he which testify these things, so John adds his own, saith surely, uh, he which testifieth these things to John, that is Christ, surely I come quickly, amen. Even so, come Lord Jesus. So there's different words pointed to the return of the Savior, but it is at the turn of the Savior uh, that, that, that we will see this, that the Lord will arise. He will return and man will not prevail. Three, threefold prayer really is that let not man be victorious. Christian, that should be the same for you. Let not your sinful nature be victorious. Secondly, let the heathen be judged. Let the heathen be judged. And certainly for their own sin, even if they are gospel ignorant, as I've already mentioned. And thirdly, let them know the fear of God and that they are merely men. This is the great problem with men. Saved man and unsaved man is we think far too much of ourselves. Far too much. Do you know that comes from the fall? It comes from the very fall. It's very much in our fallen nature. It was the, it was the false promise of Satan. Genesis 3 and verse 5, he says, For God doth know that in the day ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened, and ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. And that idea that we are gods, that we determine our life, we determine our environment, we determine the rules, we determine morality, and at times that, 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 that wicked pride of man swells up in, in, in nations and in societies. We're certainly in that now. But it's in... It's in the nature, the fallen nature of every Christian still. And it is God that commands us through the Scriptures, through the Apostles, but also in the Old Testament, that that needs to be dealt with. That that needs to be made subject to the victory of Christ. So let not man be victorious, let the heathen be judged, and let them know the fear of God, and that they are merely men and then Selah think on that that the nations may know themselves to be but men that the nations might know therefore that that they are to decrease that Christ should increase but when we come to the very end of all things Christ will has all the victory and it will be seen to have all the victory and all of his enemies and our enemies will be removed away and that includes our flesh. Even our flesh as a great enemy will be removed. As we know, the glorification of the flesh, the resurrection unto eternal life. A great enemy we have. And the Bible, although uh, Luther consistently, not consistently, persistently talked about the devil being the enemy. And it is one of the enemies. And the world is a great enemy. The world brings this great persecution upon the church. But know that the, that the Bible itself speaks more about the flesh than about the other two enemies. The flesh, the flesh, 
And one day we'll, we will open our eyes in heaven and have no more of the flesh. Nothing that would cause those tears or those sorrows because we'll receive that full holiness. Even at death, that our souls are made perfect in holiness and we'll be with the Lord forever. May God bless his word um, to our souls and may it be good food for them also. Amen. Let's pray, please. Lord, what wonderful and glorious things hast thou in store for thy people? A people that still has a rebellious heart, that does not love thee as thou hast commanded us to do so. And yet, Lord, yes, death, the last enemy. But we must add the flesh, the world, and the devil. And yet what do we see in this, in this song of victory that thou shalt righteously judge the world and thou shalt receive all the glory and all the honor and all the praise and so shall it be set for eternity that no more the wicked sinful flesh boasting but we shall absolutely decrease and Christ shall eternally increase. An order shall be set, a godly and goodly order. And we will praise thee as we have read. We will praise thee and we will rejoice in our salvation. So Lord, but we may it please thee to bless that word to us, that it would do us good, that it may be a sanctifying word to us. that we may receive grace to be humbled, that Christ would be exalted. And help us now in this time of prayer. We may call upon thee. Help us to pray, Lord, for Christ's sake. Amen.